Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're going to read a couple of verses there, starting with verse 2. Amen. It says this. It says, my brethren, my brethren, right? My brethren, all of you, my brethren, said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Oh, that's a little different. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I'm going to preach to you today, this morning, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Amen. Can you put your Bibles down? Just go with me to, in prayer for the rest of this service. Lord Jesus, we just thank you, God, for your word, Lord. We thank you, God, for the direction that we find in your word, God. I just pray right now, God, that you'd help us. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Anoint me. Anoint my mouth, Lord, to speak your word with boldness, God. Lord, to speak it with conviction today, God. Hallelujah, Lord. Use me, God, to speak to your people, God, I pray. Lord, that we could all be blessed and become and found complete, Jesus. Lord, I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. I remember as a child sitting at a dinner table all alone, all by myself. You see, food was still on the plate, and everyone else you see had left. They had abandoned me because they finished the contents of their plate. You see, it was not that I didn't want to leave the dinner table. Oh, I wanted to leave. But I was left there isolated all by myself. Why? Because my mother had the audacity to tell me that I had to finish all my vegetables. You been there? Oh, the terror. Right? Oh, the trials in tribulations of the flesh. Finish your vegetables. You see, what my mother was trying to do is my mother was trying to poison me. She was trying to kill me. Right? She was trying to kill me. And I don't know if you got it, but I, don't like, I didn't like vegetables. I like them now. I didn't like them then. So what I did, I came up with a scheme as a child. As I took those vegetables one by one and I put them in my mouth. And then when no one was looking, I took a napkin. Spit them into the napkin. And I put that napkin, bunched it up and put it on my plate. And said, I'm done. Of course, my mother was not stupid. And she opened the contents of that napkin to find all my vegetables smashed in that paper. And I, and you know, in the midst of my complaining, in the midst of me saying, Mom, I don't like vegetables, in the midst of 
I don't want to finish my food. I can't. They're icky. They make me gag, Mom. I can't eat broccoli. I can't eat peas and carrots. What are you trying to do to me? In the midst of all that, something my mother said stuck out to me. Maybe one of your parents said something similar at one point in your life. She said, Trevor, there are starving kids in Africa that would love to eat those vegetables. You, you been there? Your parent ever say that? Or maybe you've said that. I've said that to one of my kids, actually. It stuck with me. But here's the thing. Did I gain a love for, for vegetables that day? No. I still kind of hated them. But what she said stuck with me. You see, what I realized is, is she gave me a new perspective on things. I realized that life wasn't half that bad if I just had to finish my vegetables. Oh, it wasn't torture. It wasn't poison. She wasn't trying to kill me. It wasn't trials or tribulation in light of the perspective that she gave me. You see, if kids are really starving, what are some vegetables? Right? A new perspective. And this is what I found. The more I live life, the more I've learned that life and how we react to life in its different situations has a lot to do with perspective. Your life has a lot to do with how you view it. How you deal with problems and circumstances has a lot to do with the vantage point that you are viewing those trials and tribulations, right? From what point of view you have. See, your perspective is your particular vantage point. It's your point of view. It's the attitude you have towards something or the way you regard something. Right? Your perspective on problems, your perspective on your life issues, your, per your perspective on your circumstances. Right? That all makes up your perspective. It all makes up who you are. You see, perspective matters. How you view your life and life circumstances matter. How you view relationships matter. How you view situations in relationships matter. Right? Because here's, here's the thing. is sometimes you're wrong. <laughs> Sean, above all people. <laughs> Love you, Sean. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. What, is that, what, what, what am I saying? The angle of your perspective or your point of view on life will influence your thoughts. And guess what? Your thoughts will influence your actions. And your actions will determine, eventually, ultimately, will determine your destiny. So your perspective on life and the things of life matters. How you view life matters. Because your perspective will influence your thoughts. Which your thoughts will influence your actions. Which your actions will determine who you become. And your destiny. Perspective matters. Perspective matters. As I said, here is the kicker though. About perspective. Is you're not always right. And sometimes 
you're wrong. Sometimes the way you view a situation, the way, the way the angle that you view a trial or circumstance in your life, the way that you view it sometimes is not correct. The first three years of my marriage, I was a cheater. I said that to get it kind of right. You know. See, I made up my mind early in my marriage that my wife would not beat me in Uno. For three years, I cheated my wife. Three years. It's not like we played the game every single, every single day. But we would, we would play it quite often. And I determined, I determined in my life that I would not lose to that woman. I would not lose a game of Uno to my wife. <laughs> right? <laughs> they say confession is good for the soul, so here we go. There was three ways I would cheat. It's... Uh, well, of course, the one way was to just take wilds and start pocketing them, right? And you would use them whenever you needed it, right? If you had to draw four and it was looking like, man, she's going to win, you, you just pull out one of them wilds and boom. Someone say, oh, sick. <laughs> I'm sorry, your perspective on me may have changed. <laughs> oh, man. Get me nervous up here and stuff. Good thing pastor's not here, right? <laughs> so that was one way. It was wild. I'd pocket wild. The other way is if, you know, if you take, if you're kind of down, you've kind of got a, a big hand, is the, the fastest way to get rid of your hand is if you just start stacking cards. And then you would lay it down. You'd lay two cards that looked like one card. Her perspective was, wow, it's only one card. But really, it was about two or three. And finally, the last way I would cheat is, I don't know if you know this, but a six, a lot of times, looks like a nine. Especially when you lay it down real quick. And you try to hurry her up. Come on, come on, it's your turn. Go, go, go. Don't notice, don't notice. I was messed up. Lord saved me from, brought me from a mighty long way, church. <laughs> so, for instance, you got that picture? So, for instance, a six can look like a nine, depending on your perspective, right? So if I turn to the left, it looks like a nine. If I turn to the right, it looks like a six. What am I saying? What, am, what is the point I'm trying to make? I'm trying to make this, that your perspective matters. Your perspectives will influence your thoughts, which will influence your conclusions about things in life. And here's the other point I'm trying to make. Is here's the thing. How many thought that was a six? Nobody wants to, no one wants to say nothing. How many thought it was a nine? 
But here's the thing is, if some of you think it's a six and I say it's a nine, guess what? You're wrong. Whether your perspective is a certain way or not, is you're wrong. So sometimes, my point is, is your perspective can be wrong. So what if, we, what if we were not talking about numbers? But what if we were talking about greater things? Right? What if this wasn't a number we're talking about? What if your perspective was wrong on your philosophy of life? What if your point of view or your present trial or circumstance, what if your perspective of it was wrong? What if you had the wrong perspective when it came to holiness and matters of holiness? What if you had the wrong attitude when it came to the things of sin? What if your worldview was messed up and skewed and wrong? Think about it. It matters. Your perspective matters. How you view things matters. And sometimes you can be wrong, so you got to be careful. Matter of fact, the Jews did not see a suffering Savior. Their perspective was messed up. When Jesus came wrapped in swaddling clothes and in a manger, they said, no, that's not going to be the Messiah. Why? Because their perspective was wrong. Their perspective was, as we want a conquering Savior. But they didn't realize that their, that their perspective was off. And so what happened is they missed their Messiah. They crucified their Savior. You see what I mean? Your perspective, your viewpoint, your vantage point, the angle you're looking at a situation or problem or circumstance, it matters. It matters. <clears throat> Here's the thing is, is people spend thousands and thousands of dollars, thousands of hours on shrinks and counselors, right? And these counselors, they, they, they counsel people that are upset, ready to do something drastic, Sometimes that shrink knows if I can just get them to see their situation from a different perspective, if I can just change their outlook on the problem, then we can make some progress. If I can just change their point of view, if I can just change the way they're looking at certain things in life, then I can make some progress in their life. Stephen Covey said it like this, the way we see the problem is the problem. To change ourselves effectively, we first had to change our perceptions. Or to change yourself, you have to change your point of view. You have to change your vantage point. <clears throat> if you want to hear a very interesting point of view, is you read the point of view by the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. See, the, the book calls him the preacher. And as I said, his, his outlook on life is very interesting when it comes to life on this earth. He starts, out his, he starts out his book by saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a good outlook, huh? What is he saying? It's all empty. It's all emptiness. That was his outlook. He goes on to say, one generation goes, another generation comes. But he says, but the earth abideth forever. A generation comes, another generation goes, but the world is just here and it's going to keep on spinning. Eyes are never satisfied, ears are never full with hearing. 
He said, I've tried all the pleasures. I had all the riches of this world. He said, I built me houses and I built gardens and I built vineyards and I built pools and I had all the luxuries that this world had to offer. And the preacher said, after all that, I looked back on all that I had accomplished in this life and all the pleasures that I indulged in. And I said it was all vanity and it was all vexation of spirit. Meaning I thought it was going to fulfill me. But what I found out about this life, what I found out about this world is that it was full of emptiness. It was empty. It left me feeling empty. See, how did he get to this perspective? It's because he understood something. He goes on to write. He understood something. He says, yes, we all go through seasons of life. We all go through the ups and downs of life, the problems of life. But he said, if there's one event, there is one event that happens to all men. There's one thing that's going to come upon all men. And he says, guess what? We're all going to die. All of us, we're all going to die. We're all going to kick the bucket one of these days. We're all going to be pushing daisies, some of us sooner rather than later. But here's the thing, is we're all going to die, he says. He says it doesn't matter if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're wise or if you're unwise, it doesn't matter if you have a lot of possessions or little possessions. He says one event happens to us all is that we all come to death. We all die. He realized that all the pleasures just left, left him feeling empty and desiring more. And all the magnificent, magnificent things he built and all the possessions that he owned, he says, all I'm going to have to do is when that event happens to me, is now all the possessions I own, all the, the buildings that I've built, I'm just going to have to leave it to another guy. All that work, all that labor, where's the profit when we all die and I just leave it to the next man? And who knows what the next man's going to do? The next man could take care of it or like a fool just plunder it. And I worked all that time for that, just to die. He goes on to say, he said, I could become the wisest man and I can know everything. But then he says, here too is vanity. Why? Because when I die, even though I'm the smartest man on the planet, when I die, he says, I'm going to go into a grave and they're not going to remember me anymore. All is vanity. All is emptiness. What a perspective. What a life perspective. Of course, we get to the end of the book. And through all this, through all these experiences that he has, through all these realizations he has, he comes to a final conclusion. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let us hear the conclusion of all of it. This is what I've learned. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What was he saying? He's saying this, I tried all that other stuff, all those pleasures, all those riches, the power, and it all left me empty. 
And it all comes down to this. Fear God and keep His commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. If you look in your Bible, if you have a King James Version, you will notice that that last part of that verse, it says, for this is the whole duty of man. That duty in that verse is actually italicized, which means it was added. So really, you could read it like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. What do I believe this preacher was trying to say? He was trying to say, I tried everything else. I tried the pleasures. I tried the riches. I tried to build me houses. I tried to get me possessions. But what I found, the only thing to make a man whole, the only thing to make a man whole, church, is to fear God and to keep His commandments. The only thing worth living. The only thing in this life that truly matters is my relationship with my God, is my relationship with my Creator. The only thing in life that matters is that I'm right with Him. So fear God and keep His commandments because that's what will make you whole. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is vexation of spirit. If you live for this world, you will find yourself empty. But if you live for God, you will find yourself whole. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes was giving you the perspective from this world. You see, from a worldly point of view, this life is full of vanity. It is full of vanity. He goes on to say, as I said before, that to life there's seasons. He said there's a time to build, there's a time to tear down, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to weep, a time to laugh. He says we all go through these seasons, we all go through problems, we all go through circumstances and life situations. But he says if these problems we are facing today only lead to the grave, if we all go through them, and it only leads to us dying in the end, he says it's all vanity. It's all, it's all emptiness. Let me ask you this. How many people are living like this today? Why do you think there's suicide running rampant in our, in our society? Why do you think people flood their life with drugs and alcohol? Why? Because life is tough and problems and circumstances happen to everybody. And everybody goes through seasons and everybody goes through storms. But if all I, but if through all these problems, if all I have to look forward to is death, then why go through the pain? Why go through the pain? You see, the, from a worldly perspective, the writer was not wrong. Life is empty. Even Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he said we are of all men most Miserable. What was Paul saying? He's saying if I have to go through the hardships of this life, and this is all I have to look forward to, he said we are of all men most miserable. 
we are miserable. See, if we all go through life's trials and problems just like everyone, everyone else, if the Christian goes through, through trials and circumstances just like everyone else, then on top of that, if you think about it, we also face persecution. We face rejection of family members. We face, we face persecution from friends. We endure the, the ridicule of classmates and of our co-workers. And he's saying, if this is all we have to look forward to, is this life, and there's nothing beyond this life. He says we're all miserable. But not only miserable, we are the most miserable. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it, young lady. You're going through school, trying to act holy, trying to live holy, with uncut hair and a skirt. And you have the world poking and prodding and making fun of you. Think about it, young man. You're trying to live pure. You're trying to live holy. You're trying to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And you have your friends that are teasing you. And you have your, your peers that are teasing you. What are you doing it for? If in this life only we have hope. What are we enduring all of this, this struggle and this trials for? If, if the end result is we just die. <clears throat> See, I'll never forget it. My mother, we were not raised in this. We, we, I came in when I was, my mom came in first, and then she brought me in when I was just a young, young kid, about nine years old. But I'll never forget it. We were very close to our extended family, and I've said this before. Over the pulpit, we, we were very close to our extended family before she was a Christian. But I'll never forget as a young child hearing the sobs from my mother because she found out she wasn't invited to the birthday parties anymore because mama didn't drink no more. And if mama didn't drink no more, mama wasn't going to be invited anymore. Let me tell you something. If we have to face all of that, just to die in the end. We are miserable. But allow me to share something else with you. See, I, the good news is this, is this is not the Christian perspective. This is not how we view life. Amen? This is not where we're at. We're not sitting in our chairs thinking we're miserable. We're not sitting in our chairs thinking, woe is me, woe is me, no. You see, there was a phrase in the verse that just kept coming to me and kept coming to me as I was studying this. It was James 1 and 2. It says this, my brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy. You want to know what the Christian perspective is? Is we regard it all as joy. Every trial, every heartache, we have an angle. We have a perspective of joy. Count it all joy. Or in other words, when you're going through this life, and it's life's problems, sicknesses, pain, heartaches, when you lose your job, right? 
When people aren't treating you unfairly, James said, let me give you a different perspective. Instead of whiling away in your tears and your self-pity, let me give you a different Christian worldview. He says, count it all joy. Regard all your troubles, your trials as joy. Let me give further context to this, to this scripture because you've got to understand who James was talking to. See, he was talking to Christians that were dying at the hands of Jewish persecution. Families were being broken apart because of who they believed in. Christians were being sent to prison. They were being killed at the hands of Roman persecution. It was said that Nero would smear Christians with tar so that he could light up his gardens at night. Think about it. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. When they send you to the Roman games and they have lions eat you, count it all joy when they have the dogs eating off your flesh. Count it all joy when they throw you in the street and they start stoning you. Count it all joy. What? What is he talking about? Count it all joy. What's the joy in all of that? Matter of fact, James himself, tradition, tradition has said it, that soon after he wrote these words, he was slain as well in the temple. But he says, count it all joy. You see, from the world's perspective, this life is vanity and it is misery. But from the Christian perspective, our point of view is joy. Because I've come to tell somebody today, uh, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I've come to tell somebody today that we have something to look forward to. We have a joy that has been promised to us that is worth every trial, that is worth every tribulation, that is worth every problem that you're going through. Your perspective is this. Count it all joy. So what is joy? One writer said the term, of, the term joy is not an ideal translation of the original Greek because it doesn't quite cover the original meaning. See, the English definition of, the jo of joy falls short. English defines joy as an intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness. A happiness. Ecstatic happiness. But here's the thing. A person's feeling of happiness has a lot to do with what is happening in a person's life. Right? You feel happy because, hey, you went to a birthday party. Right? You got a new dog, so you have a feeling of happiness. But the thing is, is biblical joy, as we have read, seems to go beyond the circumstances and the happenings of this life. Vine's Biblical Dictionary says this, Experiences of sorrow prepare for and enlarge one's capacity for joy. One writer said it like this, Joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. See, joy is more than just what is happening at that present moment. Joy is an orientation of your heart. It's a worldview. It's your life philosophy. It's who you are. See, joy comes from the Greek word. See, I'm going to mess this all up. 
Chara, we'll just say it like that, which means gladness. Chara comes from the root word, kiero, which is usually translated as rejoice. So there is another component to joy that extends beyond happiness and into appreciation, thanksgiving, and rejoicing. One writer said it like this, rejoicefulness, if it was a word, would be the best translation of joy. Rejoicefulness. If you would allow me to say it today, the Christian perspective is one of rejoicefulness. What is it? It's rejoicing. It's thanksgiving. It's gladness. And it's a perspective of appreciation. So what am I saying? No matter what you go through, you can have a settled orientation of heart. No matter what problem you are facing, you can have the spirit of rejoicing. No matter what this world throws at you, or what, no matter what the problems you're facing, you can have a perspective of thankfulness. And no matter what you go through, you can count it all joy. You can count it all joy. Let me break it down a little further again. See, if joy is rejoicing and appreciation and thankfulness that extends beyond life circumstances, well, that, well, then that means the Christian, no matter what life throws at him, always has something to rejoice in. If joy is rejoicing, well, then what are you rejoicing about? So what is it? What is the source of your joy? As I was studying, this joy in Scripture is associated with victory. It is associated with progress, with unity, with expectation, with giving and sacrifice from a pure heart, uprightness and righteousness. But ultimately, the source of our joy, ultimately, church, the source of our joy is the Lord. Ultimately, the source of your joy is the, is the Lord. Like Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Or the joy of the Lord, my rejoicing in the Lord and what He's done in my life continues me, pushes me forward, allows me to go through life storms. When I just start thinking about the Lord and all that He's done for me, i got to shout. I've got to rejoice. My heart is lifted up with joy. You want to know how the Christian makes it? He just starts rejoicing in the Lord. He just starts thinking about what God has done for him. He just starts thinking about his salvation. He just says, I know I'm saved, and I'm so glad about it. Ah. See, when Jesus came into my life, he brought me life, and he brought it more abundantly. Ah. It was like a joy when David danced, when the presence of God came back into Jerusalem, when they wheeled that, when they carried that ark back into the, to the streets of Jerusalem. What did David do when the presence of God came back in his life? He started dancing. He started rejoicing. Hallelujah. Amen. Romans 14, 17 says it like this. For the kingdom of God is not meat 
and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Where do I find my joy, church? Where do I find my joy? Where do you find your joy? You find it in the presence of God. You find it in the Holy Ghost. You find it in the Spirit of God. You find the source of your joy. You see, it's not meat. It's not drink. It's not the temporal things of this life. See, I find my joy in the eternal. I find my joy knowing that I'm saved. That's the perspective I'm trying to give you today. When you go through life's problems, if you could just get that perspective, I know I'm saved and I'm so glad about it. If you could just get that perspective, I've come to tell you that this perspective will keep you through all of life's problems, through all of life's situations. When you just realized, you know what really matters is my salvation. I'll never forget it. I was nine years old, as I said, coming into church. And my mom, sh my mom shipped me off to Camp Galilee, junior camp. And I didn't know much about God and the things of God yet. So I was there at that camp, and they started preaching the Holy Ghost. Right? They started preaching the Holy Ghost. And uh, so I, got, I came around the front, and I, and, I started, and I started praying, and I lifted my hands. And God filled me with the Holy Ghost that night, nine years old. It was amazing. What did I get? I gained, I gained an experience with God, right? I gained God in me. But you know what else I gained? I gained a new perspective on life. I understood something. The Bible says it is the spirit of truth that comes into your life. I gained the spirit of truth into my life, and I gained a new perspective. At nine years old, I remember walking around that camp thinking, you know what? This is what life is all about. My life is all about my relationship with God. My life is all about making heaven my home. This is what it's all about. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 13, 44. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in the field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for the joy thereof, goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a man, right, that found a treasure in a field. And what did he do? He, he went and sold all that he had. Why did he sell all that he had? Because he realized something. The value of his possessions did not outweigh what he just found. You see, he found something worth more than this world's treasure. He found something worth more than this world's possessions. And he went and sold all that he had to gain it. That's the kind of perspective I'm talking about. That's the kind of perspective I'm talking about. My mother shocked me one time. She told me as a teenager, I had a little rough spot in my teenage years, but I'll never forget what she told me. She said, Trevor, I would rather see you crippled in a hospital bed and saved than have you walking around in those streets in the world. And have you not saved? She said, I'd rather see you as a paraplegic and saved than, had to know, than to know that you're out in that world and you're going to hell. You see, some may say, well, man, that's harsh. How could your mom say that? No, my mom had a right perspective. She understood something. The only thing that matters in this life is that my son is, is right with God. The only thing that matters in this life is that I'm saved.
is that I'm saved. You see, I'm giving you a perspective that is contrary to this world. This world teaches you that you live for this life. You gain the most toys. You gain a good job. You gain the biggest house, right? You get possession after possession. They're building their life on this earth. But the Christian's perspective is way different. You see, we're not building our life on this earth. We're building our life on the next. You know why this world can't steal a Christian's joy? It's because our joy is not founded in this world. Our joy is founded in the next. <sighs> James said, my brethren, he said, count it all joy. Count it all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. For the trying of your faith worketh endurance. James is telling us to get a different perspective of the trial or the problem. He says, regard it, view it as joy. Why? Because that trial is bringing about patience in your life. It's working patience in your life. Patience is, in, is endurance. So that trial, that situation, that storm you're going through, is it's working patience or endurance in your life. And we know that the Bible says that he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So what am I saying? The endurance is what is going to get you to your destination. Why have joy in the storm? Because the storm is providing you endurance. And why, why do you need endurance? Why? Because life is all about reaching that destination. Life is all about reaching that heavenly home. See, one commentator said it like this. If every possible, tri if every, or every possible trial to the child of God is a masterpiece of strategy of the captain of his salvation for his good. Let me read that again. Every possible trial to the child of God is a masterpiece of strategy of the captain of his salvation for his good. We know that all things work together for the good that are called according to his purpose. That love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. So how is God telling you to view that trial, that situation, that storm, that problem in your life? It says count it as joy. Why? Because that trial is going to work in you endurance, and that endurance is going to bring you home. That's why he says in verse 4, he says, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, when you get this perspective, when you count it all joy, when you realize the problem, the trial has purpose to get you where you're going, then the sense of gratitude can be found in the midst of the storm. When you get the right perspective, you can rejoice in the trial and circumstances because you know that God is allowing it in your life to bring you to your destination. That's why, that's why the writer says, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise when God brings you harsh discipline in your life. Don't despise when judgment comes in your life. Why? Because the Bible says that whom he loveth, he chastens. Whom he loves, he disciplines. Why? 
Because the point of view to God is this, is I'm going to allow some trials and, to, and some storms to come in your life. Why? Because my perspective is this, is I want you to be saved. I want my child to make heaven their home. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, just like my mother said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to wake them up, to get their attention. That's why I believe the psalmist wrote, In Psalms 30, verse 5, he says, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night. But he says, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Weeping may come. No doubt we still go through trials. No doubt the child of God cries at times. The struggle may be present. But just like the sun shines light on the darkness, you can find joy in the struggle You can find joy in the pain when you realize, when you get the right perspective, joy can be found. Because joy comes in the morning. What am I saying? Is when you know the end, the middle don't seem so bad. When you realize the destination, the storm, the present storm you're in, doesn't feel so bad. After all, when you know the end, the the middle don't seem so bad. The lows don't seem too low when you realize the heights that you're destined for. Could it be that sometimes your heartaches, your pain, your struggle, is simply God trying to bring you a perspective of joy? Could it be that God allows something in your life because he's trying to get your attention Don't forget it. A reminder that in the next life, you won't have to deal with this anymore. Could it be that God is trying to remind you of the joy that you will inherit? Our musicians would come. I'm going to close. Let me tell you something. Your perspective matters. Your perspective matters. It's like Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness to the promised land, right? Probably been told the story in Sunday school class. Israel's, Israel had just been, been freed from the bondage of Egypt, from the sin and the shame of Egypt. Right? They had just been set free. God miraculously frees them. And they're on their journey. And God says, I'm going to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey, the promised land. But what happens on their journey is the Israelites don't have any food. So what do they do? They start complaining. The Israelites don't have any water. So what do they do? They start complaining. So finally, those Israelites, after all that God has done for them, comes to the promised land on the precipice of crossing over the promised land. What do they say? There's giants. There's giants in that land. We can't take that land. And they say it would, be, it would have been better if we, we died in slavery, if we went back to Egypt and died in Egypt. When all the while God was just trying to teach them. God was just trying to show Israel, I'm your Lord. I'm your provider. I'm the one that's going to bring you in. I'm your victory. I'm your Jehovah Nisi. I'm your Jehovah Jireh. 
He was trying to teach them something. He was trying to give them a different perspective. But Israel was all worried about the problem. So worried about the present situation. So worried about their problems in life. That they forgot the bigger perspective. Where are you going? Where is God leading us? He's leading us into a land flowing with milk and with honey. What am I saying to you today, church? I'm saying this. The only thing that truly matters is that you make heaven your home. All the trials of this life, all the situations of this life, if you can get the right perspective, if you can look through the lens of I'm safe, I'm safe. And guess what? Those present trials don't seem so tough. Those present situations don't seem so rough. Those vegetables that your mama makes you eat don't seem so bad when you get the right perspective. What am I saying, church? I'm saying, church, that you are promised a promise. If we could all stand. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says it like this. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard. You see, when the reward is greater than the trial. It makes it worth it. And can I tell somebody today, it's going to be worth it. Can I tell somebody today, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth every trial. It's going to be worth every heartache. Can I tell you, there's a heaven to gain, church. There's a heaven to gain, church. Amen. What am I trying to say? I'm saying this, is we all have something to be grateful for. The Christian always has something to be grateful for. That's why James says is we can count it all joy. We can count everything in this life as joy. Amen. Would you worship the Lord with me? Would you thank God for his promises?